Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Hi everybody, how you doing tonight, huh? It's good. Well, turn to John chapter 4, and we're going to study one of, uh, I think, one of the best stories in the Gospel of John, and that is the Samaritan woman. And we're going to be in that story about four, in chapter four, I should say, for about four weeks because there's so much in this. Now, we've all heard of the, the, those families, the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? We've all heard that. We all know that they feud, right? That there's a big division between them and it's generational. And how many know that people just love to keep grievances and hurts? Any amens on that one, right? People seem to enjoy ancient grievances. So tonight we're going to take a look at this situation where you don't have the Hatfields and the McCoys, but you have the Jewish man Jesus, and you have a woman who's unnamed. We know her as the Samaritan woman. So you have the Jews, and you have the Samaritans, and they're going to collide in Samaria in this story. Now, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to give you the background of what this big division is so that in weeks two, three, and week four, two and three especially, I won't have to go back and do this. So I want to give you what's going on and why this collision and why Jesus going there is so, uh, it's not in the ordinary if you're a Jewish person. So let me give you the background on these two groups of people. Jesus is a Jew coming into Samaria. The Samaritan woman, she's obviously from Samaria. She's a Samaritan. Both groups of people believe in Yahweh God. Both groups of people believe in the five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And both groups of people basically hate each other, okay? So there's this big division in this group right there. So you've got to, get in, you've got to understand why they don't like each other. What, where, where did this all begin? Well, it began about 700 years before this moment in time. If you want to jot down 2 Kings chapter 17, you can find the story in there in 2 Kings 17. You can read about it later. But what basically it describes and what happened and why these people are so at odds with each other is this. The Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. When they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel 700 years before this, obviously they conquered them. And they brought in their own Assyrian settlers into there. And what happened was they start to intermarry with each other. And not only do they intermarry, they also mingle worship. So now it's a mingling of Yahweh worship with their pagan gods. And so now this whole mix is coming together. And so now you have this group of people that's living in Samaria. And I think King Ahab is the one who built Samaria. But you have this group of people living there who are mixed, basically mixed breeds is what they are. The Jews look at them as you're not pure Jewish, so therefore you're less than us. Because the Jews look at themselves as we are pure Jewish people. So now you have this battle going on between the two. Samaria here in the middle of the nation of Israel, and you have these Israelites to the south. Now, to make matters worse, as history moves forward, we're looking back at it, but history moves forward. You have this moment in time 
where in 586 BC is the last siege of Jerusalem, where Nebuchadnezzar comes and he conquers the city, destroys the temple, destroys the walls. He takes people to Babylon. Daniel has already been deported in Babylon under the first siege in about 603, 605, somewhere in there. But now you have these people taken there. Then Isaiah prophesies at a certain time that a guy by the name of Cyrus, who will be the king of Persia, that he will release the Jews to go back home and rebuild. Now, the interesting thing about that is, and here's why the Bible is a supernatural book, Isaiah prophesies about Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus ever comes on the scene, and he names him by name. He names him Cyrus. Is that incredible or what? And so Cyrus, when he conquers the Babylonians, he allows, because the Persians have a different way of looking at things, they let conquered peoples go back to their homeland. So they allow 50,000 of them to go back to their homeland. When they come back, Ezra chapter 4, if you want to read it later, well, they're going to rebuild the temple. And these Samaritans in the north, they don't like that. They don't want that to happen. Why? Because they're afraid that if the temple is rebuilt in the south, that the Jews, that the Samaritans, these mixed breeds, they're going to go back and start worshiping in Jerusalem. So they don't want that at all. So they make a big fuss and everything, but they eventually build their own temple in the, in the Samaria area on Mount Gerizim. So you're going to see this debate between Jesus and the woman about where to worship uh, later on as we study in this book. In two weeks from now, I think we're going to get into that part of it right there. And so you have this collision here. You have the worship center of the Jews of the south, the temple in Jerusalem, and you have a temple of mix. It's kind of syncretistic in the north, pagan gods and Yahweh on Mount Gerizim. So now you've got this battle going on all through history. And then to make matters worse, there was a moment in time in 129 BC that this Jewish king by the name of uh, Hyrcanus, what he does is he goes and he takes Shechem and he conquers it and he destroys the temple of these Samaritans. And they don't like that. So then time goes by, and they really hate each other. And in 609, I'm sorry, between 6 and 9 AD, the Samaritans, what they do is they take bones, obviously of dead bodies, and they go to the south, and they go to the porch of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and they spread the bones all over that. And you know if it's dead bones, it's dead bodies. And what does that do to the temple? It defiles it. And so that it enrages the Jews. So this is going back and forth and back and forth. And they can't stand each other at all. And they've got all this history, all these ancient grievances, all these things that are going on. Now, when you get that kind of background, now you can understand when Jesus is coming up and he's going to ask the woman for a what, eventually? A drink of water. Well, for them, think about it. A Jew in that time, he would never allow himself to touch, drink out of, eat from anything that a Samaritan had touched. So for Jesus to do that is going to be very shocking to the woman when you put it all together. Also, now it makes sense. Do you remember when James and John and the gang were they're going north and they're going to pass through Samaria and the Samaritans would not let Jesus pass through? Do you remember what James and John wanted to do to the Samaritans? He, they said, Jesus, can we call fire down from heaven and just light these guys up as if James and John had the power to do that? But they asked, can we do that? Can you imagine asking Jesus, hey, I know you're loving and all, but can we light these guys up? And Jesus says, you don't, know what, you don't even know what spirit you're of. Come on, you, you can't do stuff like that. 
So now that makes sense of why they got so offended by the Samaritans because there's this big battle ethnically between the two groups. But then you think about with Jesus, one day when Jesus and the Pharisees are battling, they're back and forth because the Pharisees are always trying to trap Jesus in something. Then that one day, do you remember, do you remember what the Pharisees told or called Jesus, the label they put on him? They said, we know that you are one, demon-possessed, and two, you are a what? You're a Samaritan. They call him that because that was a massive put-down at that time. So now when you get all this background and all this history, now you can understand what's going on. But here's the coolest thing about that. These Samaritans, these mixed breed of people, they are spiritually lost. They are forsaken. The Jews don't want to hang around with them. They're out here in the middle of nowhere, and they need to hear the good news. Do they not? And here comes Jesus, right? He's on a collision course, and he's going to go, and he's going to reach these Samaritans through one woman, this Samaritan woman. So with that said, that gives you a little bit of the background of why this is a really weird interaction or collision between two groups of ethnicities. Now, chapter 4 Verse 1 through 3 says this. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he, Jesus, left Judea and went away into Galilee. So he's going from the south Judea to the north Sea of Galilee area right there. Now, <clears throat> If you remember last week, we said this, that we pointed out that Jesus is baptizing, but not him. Who is baptizing? His disciples. And that's a really important thing, I think. I think John inserts, us to, inserts it to tell us that you always have to be training people after you to come up after you. Amen? See, Jesus will not be here forever. He knows he's going to be gone. He knows it's a three-year basic ministry mission and then he'll ascend and be gone. So the disciples have to get some on-hands practical training. Because on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches, 3,000 people are going to come to Christ that day of the church is born. And they, it says they got baptized. Where do you baptize 3,000 people in Jerusalem? If you look at the southern steps, when you go to Israel, southern steps on the Temple Mount, outside of it, there are all these places where you do baptisms. And there they could have baptized the 3,000 people that day. And so the disciples were already in training for that moment. Think about it, guys. Every one of us, no matter who we are, we are basically a temp, are we not? Every one of us is. I'm a temp, you're a temp. Somebody's going to come up after me, take this position. A year later, they won't even remember me. Ten years later, 20 years later, they're going to see my goofy picture in the lobby and say, who's that old goofy guy? Who is that guy right there? Any amens, right? Don't say amen to that one, okay? I just said that, but don't say that. But we're all temp. So in your notes, here we go. Number one, and that's this. Jesus thought it necessary to travel through Samaria. Jesus thought it necessary to travel through Samaria. Now look at verse 4. And he had to pass through, say where? Samaria. Notice the words had to. Literal Greek means he, it, it, to be necessary. To be necessary. 
So a Jewish person traveling north from Jerusalem in the south. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Samaria. Here's Galilee. Jesus is going from the south to the north. The typical Jewish person, what they would do to avoid Samaria, they would cross the Jordan River to the east. They would travel up on the other side of the Jordan. Once they got to the Galilee area, bypassing Samaria right here, then they would come into the Galilee area because they're not going to go into Samaritan territory. So um, he, Jesus, found it necessary to go through Samaria, not geographically, not because he's in a hurry, not to get there as fast as he could. Uh Uh-uh. He's doing this because there's a spiritual necessity. There's a woman there that's lost, and there's a woman there that's in pain, emotionally in pain. And so because we know that Jesus loves and that God loves, because John already told us that, did he not, in chapter 3? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we know that's the motivation. So Jesus is not doing this out of some uh, geographical necessity. Now, here's a question. Jesus is a Jewish man. And he's coming into Samaria to try to reach a Samaritan woman, and you have all this history between the two groups. How tough would it be for a Jewish man to break through that Samaritan woman's heart? Think about that. You don't just don't show up and start talking like nothing, right? You got to have a little bit of a strategy going on. Because there's all these walls that are built up And you got to think about that. It is no different when you and I share with somebody these days, right? There's all kinds of walls that can be built up, and you've got to think about how am I going to penetrate through that person in the things that I share. i got to be very wise in the way I talk. Now, let me give you something that just flutters in my mind, and you may find it non-consequential, but I think it's interesting. How far did Jesus travel from Jerusalem, Judea area, to Samaria to see that woman. Let's say 40 miles. 40 miles. Okay, let's widen it out. Jesus is God. John told us he was in the beginning. He always was from eternity. With that thought, how far did Jesus travel? How long did he travel to get to that woman? Long time, huh? It's a long journey. It's just one to think about. It doesn't mean anything for us tonight, but it's a long way. Now, point two in your notes, and that's this. John gives us the historical relevance of Sikhar. He gives us the historical relevance of Sikhar. Now, look at verse 5 after you write that in. Verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sikhar. That's the ancient name, the ancient name of Shechem, okay? Near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, we know the well is on there. We'll see it in the next verse that he gave. Now, this piece of land, you and I read it and go, okay, Sikhar, it's the piece of land Jacob gave to his sons and stuff like that. It's an an important piece of area because this is the place where Jacob, he purchased this piece of land and there's a well there. He purchased this piece of land and there's a well there. Did I say that already? He purchased this piece of land, there's a well there, and he gives that well of water to his sons, to his descendants. Now think about that. 
Jesus is going to use that well of water illustrating living water salvation, right? Now, Jacob purchased it and then he gave it. Isn't that salvation? Somebody had to pay the price. Somebody had to pay for it. Jesus paid for it. And then what does he do? He gives us salvation free of cost, correct? And so that's a picture. Now, you take Jacob. Jacob's the one, this is his piece of land that he purchased, gave to his kids. What's Jacob's name mean? He's a trickster, that's right. But what's Jacob's name going to be turned into, changed to? He'll be Israel. He's going to have that time where he wrestles all night long with the pre-incarnate Christ there at the Jabbok River, and his name will be changed to Israel, and Israel means striving with, striving to, with God, but it, it literally is the idea of God rules. He goes from a trickster, from somebody who's deceiving people, then he has the encounter with God, and then now God is the ruler of his life. And that's where everything changes. And Jacob, he will have um, 12 sons. One of those sons, most of Genesis is written about, what son is that? It's Joseph, thank you. Joseph covers many chapters in Genesis. Joseph, remember, is sold by his brothers into Egypt. Remember that one? And so he spends time there, and then the rest of them, after 20 years, the rest of Israel, only like 67 or 76 of them at that time, they go down to Egypt, and eventually, what happens? There's a new pharaoh, doesn't know the Joseph anymore, and they spend 400 years of bondage in that place. Joseph dies before that ever happens. But Joseph told the Israelites, he said, when we go back to Israel, take my bones with me. Do not leave me here. Now stop. What is Joseph when he says, when we go back to Israel, what is that a statement of? It's a statement of faith. We're going to go back. We're going to go back to the land because you see, Joseph, he understood his Old Testament. It said in Genesis 15 that they would be in bondage for four generations of people and then they would be set free when the sin of the Amorite is fulfilled. So they're going to come back. Joseph knew that. He understood that because he understood the scriptures. Whenever you veer up, don't know what's going on, look at the scriptures. It'll tell you which way everything's going in life. So they bring Joseph's bones back. Guess what area they bury Joseph's bones in? The Samaritan area in this area around here. So this piece of land here, historically, it's a big, big deal to these people. And so this is no just area they're walking, it's big. Now, let's read verses 6 and 7. Now watch how it plays out. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the six hours. Very important. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, say it, give me a drink. Now, let me give you four bullet points there if you're taking notes. The first one is this. The humanity of Jesus is now displayed. The humanity of Jesus is now displayed. Question. Is Jesus tired? Did it say that? Yeah. Question. Is Jesus thirsty? Yes, he is, huh? Now, up until this moment, John the writer has been showing you how Jesus is God, right? It's always been about Jesus is God. Jesus is God. But now he brings the other side of the God-man. Now he shows you his humanity. He gets tired. He gets thirsty. So now you see 
the two parts of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, the second bullet point is this. People do not typically draw water at the sixth hour. They don't draw water at that time. Question, who knows what time the sixth hour is? It's noon. It's noontime. And in Israel, it gets hot there like it gets hot here, all right? Now, this last time I went to Israel, it was in June. You guys went. Um, Jerry, you were there, right? It was nice and cool, wasn't it? It was in June. I'll never go back in June. I only did it for school teachers. October's the best month. It's just the best month. Nice, nice weather, everything. But we're there. Not only was it basically hot, it, we, we got caught in a heat wave from Europe. So it was brutal, right, Aaron? It was just brutal. And they would, they'd have to curtail our, our tour. Usually go till five every day. They'd stop it at three. It was so hot. I mean, it was hot. So you can imagine this place in the world gets hot. And the woman is coming at 12 noon. How hot is it at 12 noon there? It's really hot. Which, so, this, so now you realize that as he's telling you the story of it, this is not a usual event. She's coming at a time when you don't usually come at a time to draw water as this woman's coming. So the third bullet point is this. Jesus finds common ground. He's going to so find some common ground with this woman. Okay, question, is Jesus thirsty? Question, is the woman thirsty? Question, is Jesus coming for water? Question, is the woman coming for water? Oh, so now you find some commonality, right? That's always a wise thing to do when you're sharing and trying to reach people. Find common ground. Let me tell you how you do that. Your testimony. Share your testimony. Everybody goes through the same things, don't they? All humans go through the same things. And so when you share your testimony, it kind of draws people in because it's a common thing. We all go through common things. There's no temptation that has taken us, but such as as common to man. It's common. Now, let's go deeper before I give you the fourth bullet point. Women come to draw water in that part of the world at that, in that time either early in the morning or late in the afternoon. Why? Obviously, why? It's cooler. Women come to draw water, not by themselves, but in groups of women. Why? Social, plus not as dangerous. So that's when they come. She's coming, and, and think about this. They'd come in, and they'd carry these big jars, basically, and if filled with water, they weighed up to 40 pounds. So that's pretty heavy, right? So you're not going to come at noontime with this thing. It's just, it's, it's going to kill you. But here comes this woman at noon by herself. So something's fishy now, right? Something's not making sense of why she's coming at that time. And here's Jesus waiting for her at that time because Jesus knows all things and he knows she's going to be walking down that way at that time. So the problem is this. <clears throat> she's an outcast. Not only is she an outcast because she's a mixed-breed Samaritan with the Jews, she's in Samaria with her own group, but she's an outcast with her own people. Why? You're going to find out later, as probably most of you know, how many times has she been married? Five, Five times. And currently, she's living with a man. So now you find out, now you put the pieces together, 
and she's walking by herself at the hottest time of the day, no women friends, no friends, because she's an outcast among outcasts. She's walking there in shame. Nobody hangs out with her because of her lifestyle. And yet, here comes Jesus, the God-man. And he knows this woman lives in shame. He knows the pain of her heart. And he knows that this woman needs redemption. Does she not? Now, always remember, we talked last year, shame. Shame is a result of sin. Everyone has shame. But depending on our decisions in life and things that happened in the past, our shame issues can explode. Everybody has it. Sin says, I've done wrong, I've done bad. Shame says, I'm wrong, I'm bad. So we can start to internalize it and make feel like we're less than other people. Now, think about it. The only answer that I've discovered in all the decades I've thought about and thought about it, the only answer to shame is the answer through the blood of Jesus, and that is justification. That I'm justified, I'm declared innocent. And there's how it worked for me, and I think it works for everybody. How can I be bad and wrong if I'm innocent of everything? How can I be? And once we start to get that, we're never going to feel shame about the past in our life. We're going to know it's under the blood, and I'm declared innocent. Amen to that one? Now, when you realize all these pieces to the puzzle, now do you see why Jesus had to pass through Samaria? Now you see why he felt it necessary to pass that way? Because there's this woman here, and she needs to be redeemed, and here comes Jesus. Now, the fourth bullet point is this. Jesus breaks with tradition of the day and speaks to a woman in public. They didn't do stuff like that. No, you're not going to do things like that. Does Jesus care? No. no. You're going to find out later on when the disciples get back from buying food, they're going to go, they're shocked that he's talking to a woman. But he breaks tradition. He's not going to worry about tradition because tradition can get in the way of reaching lost people or even ministering to Christian people who are hurting. Amen? Never let the traditions get in the way of that. Now, here we go. Number three in your notes. She is shocked by the question. I mean, she's thrown by the question. Watch verse 8 and 9. Watch what she says to him. Because he asked her for a drink, correct? Now watch the response. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, and by the way, he probably sent them to buy food, right? So he wants to set this in. Because the disciples are there. They're going to mess things up, aren't they? You ever been around somebody? Could you just stop now? You're messing it all up right now. So he wants them out of the way so he can minister to this woman. Now, verse 8 again. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, because remember, he asked her for a what? Do they touch utensils that you eat, drink, and cook? No, no, Jews aren't going to touch that stuff. So it's a shocking. She said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Mm, okay. Sidebar thought. The disciples go off to buy food at town. Is it possible that she walked right by them? I think it is. And if she walked right by them, tradition, everything, do you think they acknowledged her? Oh, no, they didn't. 
But she gets here, and Jesus acknowledges her. So he, he talks to her. Here you go. So that's just a, a side thing. Let me give you one fact, and then let me give you a cool possibility that I think is going on in this whole thing here. Is she shocked? Oh, she's shocked that, first of all, a Jew and a male Jew would ask her for a drink of water. It's absolutely shocking to this woman. She basically tells Jesus basically this, you know you despise us. You know you don't like us. You know we're, we're mixed ethnicity, and you know I'm a woman, obviously, and yet you ask me for a drink? See, she's shocked because she knows all the centuries. She knows the stories, all this division, all these ancient grievances, and she's shocked that this guy would ask her for a drink of water. <clears throat> now, that's a fact. Let me give you the cool possibility. I like this better. He asked her for a drink of water, huh? He's asking her to dip in that well, and she's holding whatever she's holding to give him that drink of water. He's a Jew. Jews despise Samaritans. He's a male. Males don't talk to women in public. She has shame in her life. But when he asks her for a drink of water, is it just possible that maybe, just maybe, just maybe, that she felt like he was, at, he was respecting her, giving her some dignity. He would drink from a cup that I touch. He's a Jewish person. He's talking to me. Is it possible? That's right, huh? You ever buy food for a homeless person? You ever ask them their name? You should. Because they have a name. It doesn't matter in that moment what they did, how they got there. Just ask them their name. Give them a little bit of dignity. He gives this woman dignity. He's willing to touch, to drink from the same straw as this woman is. And it must have really touched her in her heart. This must have been the first little entrance into her heart. That he's going to, he's willing, what? You want to what? Never forget that right there. Now, let me insert a new thought right now, just for two weeks from now, okay? Because I got a key on a statement there. She says, how is it that you being a Jew ask me a Samaritan for a drink of water? What's she doing in that moment? She was reverting back to her prejudice because the two groups are prejudiced. Today, we would call this a race issue is what we call it today. Now, <clears throat> the history between these two groups is intense. And in two weeks, it will intensify more as we talk, as we go through the story. But Jesus is going to give an answer, and he's going to give the only answer that resolves anything, that resolves any of this stuff. Journalists, media, politicians, it's a joke. All they do is divide us, and that's all they do. If you ever read just the headlines, just sit back. I, I, live, I go, can you believe they say? I just laugh at the headlines because it all points to divide us, divide us, divide us, divide us. Jesus is the one who comes and unites us. And when it comes later in the chapter, you're going to see, because she's going to keep pressing this issue, and he's going to say some things that unite people together. And I, I can't wait to get there because I get a little bit 
pumped up about that kind of stuff. And you're going to see it in two weeks. So that was just to get you there, to get you started. Hopefully I didn't jump in here. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good to go. Okay. Now, number four. Is it number four in your notes? Okay, good. Okay. Now watch this. Jesus offers grace. That's number four. Now he offers grace. Okay. We know this woman. We know what she's going through. Now he offers grace. Look at verse 10, and it says this. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew, because remember, what was her question? How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? You know we don't deal with it. You know we don't like each other. You know you despise me. I'm a woman. You don't talk. Now watch with Jesus. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoa. Now, he's got her interest. He's given her respect. He's given her dignity. And now he inserts living water. What in the world's going on now, huh? And so we're going to clarify that next week. Not tonight. But I want you to think about this now. As John, the writer, is building his case of the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and everything that Christ is. He's building block this whole thing. Now watch this. Go back to John chapter 1 and look at verse 14. Now we've got to go back and remember this about Jesus. Because remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know this whole Word was in the beginning, from the way in the you know. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh. That's Jesus now is the Word we know now. He became flesh. He's the God-man. And dwelt among us, and we saw His glory Glory, they're eyewitnesses to his glory. They're eyewitnesses to these things. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Ah, oh, he's full of grace and truth. Do you remember what we said about that the second week of this study? He's not 50% grace, and he's not 50% truth. He's 100% truth, and he's 100% grace. Every character quality of Jesus is 100%. It's all the way. And when you have all the qualities together, they balance beautifully. Now, he's full of grace and he's full of truth. Now, watch how John has built the gospel. Now, look at John chapter 3. Go back to the Nicodemus story. Watch this. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, say it. Oh, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born. Stop right there. Okay, look at verse 5. Jesus answered... What did he say? Truly, truly. Oh, that's interesting. Now look at verse 11 in chapter 3. It starts off with truly, truly. Wow. So we have truly, 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 truly. So now we're, he's, John the writer is emphasizing in the interaction with Nicodemus, what's he emphasizing? The what? It's the truth, right? And so now you see him now insert the other 100% of Jesus when he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. So now here comes 100% grace. We've seen 100% truth. Now it's 100% grace, right? You see the two? It's amazing how John, he's a great writer, how he puts it all together. Now, let's veer deeper into this woman's life as we kind of bring this thing toward the end. Is her life filled with disappointment? Is it? Yeah. 
you know, I know it's easy on a Sunday morning, people come in and it's easy to think everybody's got their life together. No, they don't. No, they don't. There are people coming here so broken and they're just sucking it up and keeping the game face on. If you ever, you come around the altar and we're praying for people, you ever just look around and you see all the tears in people's eyes. There's a lot of brokenness. People need a touch from God. You never underestimate. You know, even the greeting time, when you keep going to the same people, don't. Somebody there might need somebody to be acknowledged. Somebody there's a Samaritan woman coming by herself, coming by himself. And you got to remember that. Because don't think that everybody's got life together. She, her life is disappointment. It's just disappointment. Think about her life. Her life has been give, 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 not get. Five husbands. She gave, 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 and they each one probably left her. We don't know. Because it was easy to divorce a woman back then. And now she's living with a guy, so she's still giving. Think about that. Okay. If she wanted prayer back then, she'd have to pay. Pay a priest to pray for her. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. if, she if she sinned and she wanted forgiveness, she'd have to pay too. She had to buy a lamb, right? Right? So everything's pay, give, give, pay, give, give. Everything's going down that road. Has she ever really heard the true heart of God? She never has. She's never heard this true heart of God, that it's not what we give, it's what God came to give us. He came to give us salvation, give us grace. We're saved by grace through faith. Our belief in God is our faith, and grace to us is right there. There's no work in that. It's just, it's just put my faith in Jesus Christ. There's no, nothing you have to pay for. It costs nothing. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, verse 1, he says, come, it's not in your notes, come to the waters and drink. And then he says, those of you who are hungry, uh, you know, come and buy food that doesn't cost you anything. In other words, he's saying, yeah, come and buy it, but you don't have to, you don't have to pay anything. It's just there for you. And it's free, and it's free from God. Think about everything that's going on in this woman's life. And here comes Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And so now he's got this woman's attention. And man, next week, you're going to crack her open, man. It's going to be so good, man. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at verse 10. I'm going to just comment in verse 10 again. If you knew the gift of God, question, what doesn't she know? Grace. Okay, look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, what else doesn't she know? Who Jesus is. Oh, yeah. And then finish off, if you knew, and he would have given you living water. What, what doesn't she know? Salvation. That's right. She doesn't know grace. She doesn't know Jesus. And she doesn't know salvation. Isn't that something? That's the very same thing that billions of people still don't know. Grace, Jesus, salvation. So we have our work cut out for us. Amen? Now, <clears throat> let, let, me, let me close this way. Um, God, it goes fast, doesn't it? Um, okay, so remember we started with Jesus had to pass through there, correct? He had to pass through there. He's coming for this one lady because this one lady really matters because everyone really matters to God. Do they not? But Jesus is not the only time he ever went after one person. You know that, right? He's got this bad habit. 
He's got bad habits that you and I need to practice more of these bad habits. One day, Jesus told the disciples, get in the boat. We're going to go over to the other side. Jesus gets in the boat with them at this time. A storm comes up. Remember? What is Jesus doing in the boat? He's out cold. Can you imagine him in that boat? What if he's snoring? And the water kicks up. These boats aren't big. I mean, I described them to you, I think, about three, four weeks ago. One time. They're not big. They have one in a museum there in Galilee. You'll see it. In his, it's not big. And he's asleep in that thing. And the waves come up fast because the, mount, the, the wind comes down the Jordan Valley from, from fabled Mount Ida in the north. And it comes and it starts to kick up and pick up speed. Once it hits the Sea of Galilee, which is just a big lake, seven miles by 14 miles, it kicks up the waves. And the waves start crashing over the boat. And he's asleep in it. You think he got wet? He must have been kind of tired because he's still asleep. And they're dying. They're, We're going to die. And so they wake him up and they tell him what? What we all tell God, don't you care? Don't you see that we're dying here? Can you imagine he's going, you know, I never thought about that. You know, I know. Jesus knows everything. What does Jesus do in that moment? He sits there and he says to the storm, what? Be still. Jim John Campbell translation, shut up. The Greek gives it the idea that there's a demonic entity, that that storm is an entity, and Jesus speaks to it and tells it to shut up. Now, do you think Satan was maybe trying to drown Jesus and the gang in the Sea of Galilee that night? I think so. Why? Well, number one, he wants Jesus out of the way. But number two, Jesus, remember he said, we're going to go to the other side of the lake because there's somebody on the other side of the lake. Remember that guy? He gets there. How many demons in that guy? He's a legion. Yeah, we don't even know him. You know, 6,000, but it just means a lot. They get there, and this guy's been living in the cave. They try to shackle him. They can't hold him. He's out of control. He's screaming at night. He's in such deep agony and pain because he's so demon-possessed. And then Jesus shows up there. Can you imagine the disciples when that guy's all over the place? They're like, and Jesus just walks up like nothing. And the demon comes up to Jesus. The demon-possessed man comes up to Jesus. And he says, what do I have to do with you? You know what it literally means? What do we have in common? Why are you here? Question. Do you think that demon has known Jesus for who knows how long? He knows exactly who's on the scene now. Oh my gosh. Oh, Yahweh's here. Oh no. You know, that's who's there. And he knows it. And the demon falls. Jesus, and he says, please don't throw us into the abyss because if they get thrown in the abyss, then they're locked up and they cannot take on another body to manifest themselves. So they don't want to be thrown there because they'll be locked in there till revelation when the abyss is opened up in the great seven-year tribulation. Please don't throw us in there. So he sends them to the pigs, right? They jump in the pigs, right? The demons go, remember that story? First case of deviled ham in the entire history of the world. Amen to that one. Okay, I have to say that every time I get that story, so... Laugh next time, too. Just pretend like, oh, he's so funny. But anyway, the demons, they run over the side, they go in the water, and they drown, and they die. And of course, the townspeople hear about it. They come over, and they, they go, oh, no, it's great that he's free now, but the pigs, you know, we lost our business because it costs too much to see one person saved. It costs too much to see one person saved. And the man's healed. He's in his right mind. Remember when you started thinking right? Remember when you started thinking right? Because the word of God. And what does a man want to do? 
He wants to go with Jesus. What does Jesus say? No, stay here. Tell people what good God's done in your life. And then Jesus gets right back in the boat. He doesn't even stay overnight. He doesn't even look for a hotel. He gets back in the boat, they go and they cross back to the other side. And, he, and that was it. And that was it. Just for the one guy. And we're going to find out in this story that he came there just for this one person. But this one person, once she gets delivered, once she gets transformed, once she receives salvation, she's going to go back to town. And she's going to save the whole town because she's lit up now for God. Remember when you were first saved and how lit up you were? We got to get back to that, huh? We need that first century fire. We need that again. Otherwise, it just becomes one big debate in our lives. It's fire. We got to get back to that. But he goes for one person. That's how much God cares about every last one of us. Amen. Let's pause there tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your word. It is so profitable. It is so edifying. And thank you, Lord, we just scratched the surface of this story. It's going to get more intense with each week. Lord God, we praise you. We love you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.